Hey, it's Catherine. It's now December, the season of sharing and caring, and I have a favor to ask. If you love The Double Shift, share the show with some people you think will love it too. Post about it on social media, email it to your friends, or send a link in a group text to some moms you think need The Double Shift in their lives. We have gotten so many listeners from word of mouth, and we think there are even more out there who would love the show. Thanks so much for telling your friends. This is The Double Shift, the show about a new generation of working mothers. We're challenging how society sees moms and how we see ourselves. I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. Every mother works, and moms face all kinds of deep-seated social and economic issues. And here at The Double Shift, we're not pretending we can just life hack our way out of these problems. So this season, we're getting personal with our guests, because we believe the revolution at work and in society begins with a revolution in our homes. We'll explore the ideas that families don't have to be conventional to be successful. And support for parents can come from the most unexpected places. This is season two of The Double Shift. The revolution begins at home. Today's episode goes way outside the box of quote-unquote traditional modern American family life. We'll visit a co-housing community and get to know a person named Ted Rao. Ted now identifies as a transgender man and is a parent to five children. His story presents a fascinating and nuanced take on gender and motherhood. Just being on the playground, you know, it used to be that presenting female, you had all, like, you could just walk up to any other mom and talk. And now that's not an option. Ted arrived in the U.S. from Germany in 2010 after getting a Ph.D. to do two years of postdoctoral work in linguistics. At the time, Ted was married to a man and was female presenting. He had given birth to four kids, and the youngest was six months old. And now we want to take you through some pretty classic challenges and dilemmas he faced as a mother thinking about family life and career. After many years of study and finishing his postdoc, Ted decided academia wasn't for him and wouldn't be compatible with family life. But he and his husband decided they wanted to stay in the U.S. His husband got a work visa, but Ted couldn't get one for quite a while. So Ted, who at the time identified as a mother, stayed at home with the kids. And so you are now at home with four kids at the time. And at some point, there's a fifth child on the way. Is that correct? Right. Because once you're already home, you can as well add another kid. <laughs> Just keep adding. <laughs> so you have four kids at home. You have one on the way. And you start homeschooling them. And homeschooling and four kids and being pregnant, that sounds like a very 24-7 kid-centric life. Did you enjoy that? Was that a happy Was that a happy time in your family? Well, it's funny that you asked those two questions. Did you enjoy that? And was it a happy time? I think back to it as, I think, the happiest family time that we had. So that's me and the kids. Just because we learned so much together, we explored so much together, and I loved that part of it. I personally was not very happy 
<laughs> so it was, it, yeah, it's it's some some happy sad memories there. I love that to get togetherness, the sort of tribal feeling of the six of us, and I was intellectually bored. And homeschooling or parenting in general, and you know, of course, that has its value. Nothing against it. Yet, if that's the only thing I'm doing, then. There's a lot of repetitiveness, right? You get up and there's laundry again and the kids are hungry again and they still don't like broccoli. You know, like it's just, it, uh, there's just so little forward motion. And I still, I still am reminded sometimes of that time, for example, during summer break or just a weekend. It sounds like I'm complaining about time with the kids and that's not at all the case. What I'm complaining about is that during the times I spent with kids, nothing else gets done. And that's what I'm mourning. So I'm not complaining about the time I'm spending with kids because that's typically great. Yet I really also need to move things forward somewhere in my life. So the fact that it was exclusively time with children, that was the problem. Right. That there wasn't outlets for other kinds of projects or creativity or intellectual stimulation. Yes. Tad and his family realized that if they were going to stay in the States with all their kids and no extended family around, they wanted more support. They found out about a co-housing community, an intergenerational 32-home complex in Massachusetts on 22 acres of woods and farmland. Each family has their own private home with, you know, bedrooms and a kitchen, living room, But there's a big common house where residents have meetings and dinners twice a week. There are gardens, a hen house, and playgrounds. The co-housing membership is self-governed, and each adult has to do six and a half hours of work for the community per month, from planning meetings to doing dishes after the communal meal to yard work. Cars are parked on the outskirts, so it's pedestrian-friendly and safe for kids to roam. Ted and his family took a tour to see if it was for them back in 2012 and fell in love with it. And I remember that my oldest daughter, she must have been, let's see, she must have been nine at the time. So we pull out of the community as we leave and she says, okay, when are we going to move in? And she was just voicing exactly what we all were thinking of. Like, yeah, I think this is a done deal. We're staying here. This is, this is awesome. What, what do you remember? What are some specific things that stood out to you in the beginning about why this place was so special and felt right for your family? You know, kids as young as four or five can just go roam. And, you know, then often what my younger kids in particular do is they walk around and they chat with this neighbor that's in their garden. Then they go there and then they help something real quick here. So there's just so much stimulation and so much... Um, What's the word? I guess integration with other people's lives. You bump into each other more often. And that's how I want to live and that's how I want my kids to live. I want to not have to make an effort to be somewhere. The way I was socialized in Germany was you just go out on the streets, right? And that's, I know how many people in this country also grew up that way. But here that in co-housing, that's actually still true. You just go outside and look who else is outside. You don't have to arrange a play date, you know, which seems such a grown-up-y concept, you know, to like arrange a date and then somebody drives you and then you're there and in one and a half hours you're being picked up. That just seems so cumbersome as, as a social life. And in co-housing, it all just flows together. You just go outside, there's other people, you chat, you help something. It, it has just a much more organic flow to it. Do you feel like 
this community helps the experience of parenting be less isolated? <laughs> How many yeses can I say here? Uh, yes, <laughs> and that's an understatement. It's I, I can't I can't count the times I was bailed out by a neighbor. It's you know let's say what a good example. So my kids basically have what we call adopted grandparents here, especially two two um, women in the community. That's where they go when they're upset with me. That's where they go every Tuesday because they want to. Um, they know by my kids know by heart when you know that particular neighbor um, comes out of work because then they linger around her house and you know to to be the first one to greet her. Um, I remember I have one very sweet story. It was a Saturday morning. I was sick. I hadn't slept well. I was alone with the kids. Different people had to be driven different places at different times, and it was just incredible. I was really it was daunting, just not not feeling up for the task. And I was just saying that to the children, you know, just like, "Whoa, I really." don't feel well and right now I have no idea how to even survive this day and uh, daughter number three um, she must have been let's see maybe 10 at that place said to me okay look around you where are you and I said uh, in co-housing and then she said yeah that means you're not alone there's people here to help you and I said, well, thank you for reminding me. It's so easy to forget. You're right. And, you know, and you can just send out an email to the whole list and there will be somebody that, that, that can help you. So many times when I was sick or I needed an extra ride and I needed an extra that, um, you know, it's way beyond just the, uh, the stereotypical um, cup of sugar. It's way beyond that. One of the reasons that we wanted to do this whole, we're doing a whole season about reimagining family and thinking about community in different ways. And one of the reasons I wanted to do, to do that is because I feel like the ethos in America is basically like if you have kids, you're on your own to figure it out. Like it's up to you to just figure out every element of that and make it work for you. And there's not much sense of communal responsibility or communal help. And do you have a, is there a sense in the community that the community is responsible for the kids in a way that sort of goes beyond just you're the parent, it's your job to do this? Yeah, to the extent that we're all responsible for each other. So the the idea of what I would call interdependence is just something that is obvious to people if they choose to live in a community like that. We are not on our own, and we don't want to be on our own, and there's no point in proving that you can do it on your own if it's much more fun and easier to do it with others. It's just, it's just not buying into that narrative of you have to prove yourself. Ted's family is very happy with their community, and they're not the only ones sold on the benefits of co-housing. The model was created in Denmark back in the 1970s. Ted's is one of approximately 165 co-housing communities here in the U.S. And enthusiasm for the model is growing, with around 140 more in planning stages across the country. They are becoming especially popular with empty nesters and young families. And while Ted can't imagine living anywhere else, he says he can see how it's not for everyone, especially people who value a lot of privacy and independence. Although co-housing can seem like a utopia to some, critics point out that there's a downside in who's adopting the model and who can afford it. Research has shown around 95% of co-housing residents are white and 66% have graduate degrees. But many co-housing advocates are working to improve diversity. 
and there is interest from a wide range of people in the idea. About four years after moving into co-housing, and after 17 years together, Ted and his husband decided to split. They eventually were able to work out both the logistics and finances for both of them to stay in co-housing. Ted's ex kept the house, but Ted also stayed in the community. The kids go back and forth and spend 50% of their time with each parent. Ted was still presenting as a woman at the time of the split and says although feelings about his gender had been with him for a long time, it was not a central issue to his divorce. But after the split, Ted started to explore his gender identity in a new way. So the trickiest thing was making the decision. Um, I always knew that I that they had sort of what I would call gender issues going on. But to be honest, I thought that every woman had that. And I was so firm, I was such a strong believer in that story that it took many blows till that one fell, actually. I remember um, overhearing a conversation of women of um, how glad they are to be women. And, and that one really stuck with me of like, hold on, there are women who want to be women. That mm. was completely news to me. I had no idea. I thought everybody just arranges themselves with the fact. You know, and then I always conflated sexism and, and my own gender preferences. So mm. I always... It took me a while to understand that those are separate issues. Yes, it's hard to be a woman and there's a lot of disadvantages that come with it, but that's not why I want to transition. I always thought that's why I wanted to transition. Like, cool, yeah, like everybody would want to be a man. That's a better deal, right? Mm. But I realized then that there are women who like being women despite all the disadvantages, and it wouldn't even occur to them that, that being a man would be something desirable. And that's um, when I started looking at it more. Um, because I had always told people my life would be much easier if I were a guy because that would that would just m make much more sense. I would actually be, that's yeah, hardly anything else to say, that that would just make more sense with who I am. Um, so and then I, I did what we all do, right? I Googled it. Then what popped up was what they call the button test. And it's something like that. Like if there were a button that you can press and you are all of a sudden in the other um, in, in the other sex's body with no social repercussions, so you don't have to think about, you know, all the negative things that people can say or think, and it's irreversible. Would you press the button? And my reaction to that one was interesting. So I read this test and what was rising in me was just pure anger. Of like, well, that is such an idiotic statement stupid test because everybody would push that button and then I paused and I thought hold on what if not everybody would want to push that button oh I think I just passed the test because to me there was such a no-brainer that I would push it that I didn't even understand the question as such so that's when I started looking at it for real and then I was you know kicking and screaming quite a bit still um, because it seemed too big of a label to, to, to take on. I, it was not that I was happy about it at all. It took me quite a while. So what was your sort of first step in exploring that identity beyond just um, thinking that, the, just considering that the label might fit you? I read somebody's biography and I had this cool moment 
So that was somebody who also transitioned female to male. And I had this cool moment of reading the book. And from time to time, I threw the book on the couch and like, oh, dang, another thought that I could have written. I thought it was just crazy me having those thoughts. Okay, so a whole book of all the crazy things that I wouldn't never dare to say out loud. Okay, they were all gathered in a book. That was mind blowing to me. And then I took the book and I looked at it sort of um, from the bottom to see how far into the book I am. And it was about a third in. And the thought in my mind was, oh, that's where I am right now. The rest is like looking into the future. So then it was clear, okay, I'm going to transition. That's, that's now what I'm going to do. After a break from our sponsors, we'll hear more from Ted about his transition and his evolving views on gender and motherhood. I'm here with senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Rachel, have you noticed since the weather has gotten cooler, I haven't been making as many of those tasty smoothies lately? I miss them, Catherine. I loved coming to work in the morning with a Your Super smoothie waiting for me. I know. We love the Your Super berry smoothies we were having made with Your Super's functional superfood and plant protein mixes. Oh, and there's also the chocolate lovers mix. Oh, yeah. We made that with the peanut butter and banana. So good. But I just learned that Your Super is not just for smoothies because now that the weather's getting colder, we're going to start putting them in baked goods and other savory foods. Like you can even put them in pasta sauce because there are no sweeteners added to them. In reality, 9 out of 10 people don't get enough fruit and veggies. So Your Super works great for all kinds of foods to stay healthy. Your Super has so many free recipes and other resources on their site. They have this recipe for unicorn overnight oats with their forever beautiful mix that I really want to try. Your Super's functional superfood and plant protein mixes are made from naturally dried organic whole foods. No fillers or sweeteners. And here's another thing I learned about Your Super. They are a B Corp certified company, which is the highest standard for social corporate responsibility, committed to a bigger mission. For every mix you buy, they donate a life-saving food bar to someone in need. Love that. Get the cleanest superfood and plant protein mixes out there at YourSuper.com. That's Y-O-U-R Super.com. Get 15% off your order when you use the code DOUBLESHIFT at checkout. Go to YourSuper.com and don't forget to get 15% off with a promo code DOUBLESHIFT, one word, at checkout. Hi, senior producer Rachel McCarthy. Hi, Catherine. So tell me, how's the membership program going? Rachel, our membership program is going so well. Our members are some of the most thoughtful, coolest people on planet Earth, and I so appreciate each and every one of them for their support of the show. So what are some of the benefits of being a member? You get bonus content related to each episode, extra behind-the-scenes members-only episodes, and I ask members for direct feedback on different ideas I have. They are absolutely crucial in helping me chart a direction for the future of the show. Plus, we are thinking about all sorts of ways to build community, and we are about to try out our very first video hangout with members, so if you want to be in on this, you should definitely join. Other benefits include my undying appreciation, which is priceless. 
um, and supporting real journalism about working moms. And your contribution makes a huge difference to this tiny mom-run operation that is dedicated to challenging the status quo of motherhood in America. This is not just a podcast. This is a movement. Membership starts at $5 a month, but you can give more if you're able. And these contributions are crucial for funding our third season. So don't wait. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. We're back with Ted Rao. At this point in his story, he's transitioning from presenting as a woman to identifying as a man. He began exploring changing from his birth name to being called Ted and tried it out on a three-week trip. Being called my old name felt so absolutely wrong to me after those three weeks. It was really easy to to get used to my new name. Um, so it was clear, okay, I, I need to act now because I can't I can't stay in this vague um, place anymore. And I wanted the kids to hear about it first. Luckily, they know one transgender person. And so the younger said, so like that other person, right, saying that kid's name. Like, yeah, exactly. Oh, okay. That kid was four at the time, four years old. So that was number five. Then number four's reaction um, was like, oh, okay, you decide who you want to be. Sort of she's very strong in that narrative of you do you kind of thing. Um, which <laughs> I have a little hesitation about, but it served me in this in this case. And number three was having a hard time just because what she was saying was there were already so many changes in the family. Right. Now what's that going to do? So she was afraid. She was afraid of what people would say. Um, so that was the trickiest. And the two older ones, um, they really, I would say, lived their own life quite a bit. So they didn't have, they didn't seem to depend on who who I am for themselves. They were just happy for me. Yeah, so they each had their own response, but they all made sense to me. We then went on vacation soon after, and I asked them to stop calling me mom. Hmm. Just because I, I could actually see myself going back to mom at some point, but right now I just don't think they have the awareness of in which places that is a good idea. And I don't want to teach them sort of the awareness of where's safe and where's not safe. That's that's not a discussion I necessarily want to have quite yet, at least for the younger ones. So my request was, don't call me mom, call me Ted, uh, which has its own problems, but that's that was the next step on that. And they know that I'm on testosterone, obviously, and they are great advocates for me. So whenever somebody uh, uses wrong pronouns, they are the first ones to correct you know, something like mom, mother, and so on. That's tricky between us and the rest of the world. It's not tricky between me and my kids. Hmm. So it sounds like they were able to process the news quite well and very maturely, and you were able to really establish good communication with them. But, you know, the whole world is not always as accepting. Have they experienced any difficulties from their friends or peers, or has there been other things that have concerned them since this has happened? Well, one of my kids does get teased on the bus, sadly. Something like, your family is messed up. So, yeah, that happens. And I I do pass as male 
100%. So that's, it never happens that somebody doesn't know my pronouns um, or that I'm a man just by seeing me now. It's more people that knew me before. But so it's not... Um, so if I am, let's say I take them to the library, there's never the question. It's just, you know, a dad and, and his kids for people. So right. And that passing privilege really makes it very easy and we're sort of in choice over who we tell what. What have your interactions with other parents been like now that you present in a more masculine way? <laughs> That's a big topic. I'm very much aware of how I'm being perceived in public. I remember when I first changed my name on email and I first put my automatic vacation, like that automatic response that you're on vacation in, I was celebrating that I could write, you know, for the next two weeks, I'm going to be offline. I'm going to be spending time with my kids. And I know that coming from a guy that sounds amazing and cool, coming from a woman, eh, not so much. <laughs> so, you know, I'm exaggerating here, but there is a tendency in that. So I love being on the other side and just raking in that privilege. And, you know, I say it, I say it as if it's funny and I'm aware that it's not really You know, so much of parenting and getting through what can be difficult about parenting and building bonds as parents, I think a lot of moms have that sort of seek out and have that sort of mom to mom relationship where you feel like you can have friends that you can talk to and and trust and be honest with. Has that changed at all for you? Yeah, definitely. And people that don't know me where typically the mom to mom trust was there, that's just gone completely gone and I'm um, still in in shock about how gone it is and how that's something that we don't talk about in society the suspicion with which men are treated quite a bit like I'm going to give you an example I was paying at a gas station without kids person in front of me a woman had a kid with her and the kid was maybe I don't know eight or nine kid was turned towards me and was just smiling or just looking at me and you know if somebody in front of you smiles at you you smile back that you just acknowledge the existence right and the her mom I assume her mom saw her kid smile at somebody looked over her shoulder saw me and then pulled her kid closer to her with with her arm and I thought that was really sad because you know it was the first time it was like whoa hold on did you just think I'm dangerous that's weird I actually checked with some cis men, you know, like, is that your experience? Is that is that what people do? And said, oh, yeah, all the time. All, and, and that was just new information to me. I had no idea. Or just being on the playground, you know. It used to be that presenting female, you had all, like, you could just walk up to any other mom and talk. And now that's not an option because it's always a little suspicious of like, what does that guy want from us? Like, is he flirting? Is he dangerous? Where's his kid? I hope he's here with the kid. Like, you can really see them going through all those things. It's so uncomfortable. So I'm, and then typically the pattern that I observe is that often, even if there is a dad on the playground, that dad is, tends to be not as social. So it's very lonely on playgrounds these days. Mm -hmm. Um, That's something that I did not see coming and that I'm really sad about. Are there expectations or things that you feel freed from doing now that you don't identify as a mom? It does make it a little easier to co-parent, although it was already fairly easy with my ex. I now sometimes have to sort of tell myself, no, I'm not going to pick up the slack now because I don't have that role anymore. You know, it's like, no, we're really equals and I just don't do it. I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, it's still also still fresh for me. So I spend a lot of time thinking about these things and wondering what is my contribution and what's really real out there in the world. I don't know. It's hard to tell all those apart. 
what you were just saying in co-parenting, you occasionally have these moments of thinking, oh, it's not my job to pick up the slack. Has that sense of sort of self-sacrifice, has that changed at all now that you are identifying as a parent and not as a woman parent? You know, I'm really endlessly torn on that because I still have, you know, I still have that voice in me that would like to say now, well, but somebody does have to pick up the slack. Just taking the sacrifice out of parenting also doesn't seem to be a complete story because there is some sacrifice involved. And sometimes doing it with a sacrifice kind of attitude actually helps getting it getting it done. So um, I guess I here's, I guess, a fair summary is that I don't really have a good role model of how to parent without the sort of sacrifice mindset or in rebellion to it. I wanted to go back to this question you've noticed when you talked about sort of proudly claiming you're out of office. I'm spending time with my kids. I'm going to claim my privilege in the workplace as a someone who appears as a man. Have there been any, any other changes in how you feel like you're perceived in the workplace now that you're presenting more as a man? Well, I've always been fairly assertive and it's been held against me. I know that. Um, I actually read a study that it's, you know, assertiveness is held against women quite a bit. So I'm glad that I don't have to fight that one anymore. I've actually backed off more from this, that assertiveness. It's a little bit like being handed a very powerful weapon and being aware that maybe it's not even a good idea to use it, no matter how much you want it. That's how I receive male privilege. It's like, okay, I'm aware I have it. I'm aware it's powerful. I'm aware I love it. And how about we don't, like, how about we tone it down a little? How has your transition made you think differently about how mothers are perceived and treated in society? <laughs> That's such a big question. Again, I can really only best talk about myself and not so much about, you know, how mothers perceived in society. I don't know. I only see that with my with my tainted glasses, right? Because what's actually quite a curse is that I that I as I said, have heightened awareness around gender dynamics. And I'm going to say something very unpopular, and that is that my awareness is also pretty, like, I'm very sensitive around the many situations in which women perpetuate gender roles quite a bit. For example, yesterday I was waiting at the orthodontist, waiting till my daughter was done, and there was this woman there that had to make a new appointment for her daughter, and she was the whole time complaining about her incompetent husband who, you know, took the daughter to the office but failed to make a new appointment, failed to get the new this and that, and failed to get this. And I was really uncomfortable hearing how she was talking about a grown-up person, you know, just sort of, and the, the people working at the orthodontist were women, so I think she was playing on that... Um, yeah, let's talk, you know, let's talk about our incompetent, stupid husbands that don't even know how to parent. So what I'm saying is I am aware of all of this, a lot of it, a lot of it more than before, and I don't like what I see on many sides. So, um, and I know that's not a popular opinion to point out that sexism has its contribution not only from the side of males. So... That I consider a curse, that I can see that now. It's sort of all the many ways in which women sometimes um, play themselves down um, and so on. I, of course, I also see the other side, you know, what males do. I don't want to, like, I want to mention that I'm aware of that. Um, 
But that I saw before too. But now that I've sort of stepped one step away from the world of women, I look at it and and that's a that's a really tricky one. And I'm not super comfortable talking about it because I know it's such a such a hot issue. You know, one question I have is looking back on your own experiences in even though it sounds like you had conflicted feelings about your gender identity for many years, you, you know, went through many pregnancies and births and had some very sort of defining moments where you're you occupied a very gendered space, um, you know, as a pregnant woman and as a mother with a baby and all those sorts of things. Do you think back on some of those experiences and see them differently now? No, and I'm guessing, you know, that is a question I get from time to time, and I'm guessing that I'm going to lose some credibility here. But to me, these are not not super gendered experiences. Um, I know that's hard to believe, and I, I that's I'm not making any point except for just saying how it is for me. So I'm not making any any bigger statement than that. It was not very gendered for me. There's also this little piece of me that thinks that maybe it maybe I love being pregnant because. Finally, my body was good for something. Um, I think that played a role of like, well, at least, you know, this is completely not what I want. But hey, you know, if you can make little humans, that's pretty awesome. And breastfeeding is just endlessly convenient. And I like the connection. So for me, it's more the connection with my kids. It's not really gendered. Um, But, you know, I typically resist the summary of having seen things from both sides. That's so great because I don't think that's an accurate statement. In this case, that experience, I think, was great to have. Being able to access something that is really reserved for the other side. By the way, Ted's co-housing community has been extremely supportive of his transition. And he said coming out to them as transgender was as simple as sending a statement about it to everyone via email. His kids now range in age from 16 to 6. Ted did finally get that work visa, and he is very happy in a new career working at a nonprofit that promotes sociocracy, which is a new socially responsible system of governance, which is used by co-housing communities, schools, and other collectives. I learned so much from my fascinating conversation with Ted, and if you'd like to hear more from him about his thoughts on his identity as a gay man and his discussions with his kids about it, and co-parenting with his ex-husband in co-housing, become a member of The Double Shift. It's a really great way to support the show, and you get exclusive members-only content on our episodes. Just go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. That's thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member today. Next week, senior producer Rachel McCarthy is going to turn the microphone to me, and we're going to talk about my own big life developments. You know, like being pregnant with twins and what I've learned about being a working mom by working on the double shift, and how that informs my next chapter, along with plans I have for the show for season three. The double shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. We're also produced by Asal Asanipour. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our editorial advisor is Amy Westervelt. Our research assistant is Julia Hayward. Music by Travis Morrison. Our theme song is by Palehound. Audio mix by Ashley Ann Krigbaum. Our advisory board includes Amy Henderson and Lauren Smith Brody. 
Special thanks to Ben Brock Johnson. We're funded in part by the generous support of the Ford Foundation and you, our members. Don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and part of the Critical Frequency Podcast Network. Thanks for joining The Double Shift.